Well, thank you. Welcome to Trinity Church. Uh, my name's Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. And at uh, this time, we get to study God's Word together. We love our triune God. One God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, forever living in perfect unity with each other. We reject the notion that God is so high and lofty that he's unknowable. Well, why do we reject that thought? Well, because our God has chosen to make himself known. We would have no clue, of, would have no idea of how to figure God out if God had not taken the initiative and made himself known. And it's not that we've figured God out already. We keep learning. We keep growing. And throughout eternity, we will continue to be awed by our God, learning more about who he is. And our God has chosen to reveal himself, and he's primarily revealed himself through his word. That's why we, um, as Trinity Church, through this time of the sermon, that's why we work through passages of scripture, just letting God set the agenda and unpack it together because if uh, God has spoken, we want to listen, listen carefully. I hope you've enjoyed our series uh, going through the Gospel of Matthew. We've been doing this for a little bit over a year now and uh, going to be doing it for a while to come. And, and that's, that's a good thing. We aren't just studying any character in Scripture. We're, we're studying the life and ministry of Jesus Fully God, fully man. He is the exact representation of God himself. If you want to learn more about who God is, well, look to Jesus. Uh, in John's gospel, he says that Jesus is perfectly exegetes God the Father. If you, if you want to know about the unseen God, well, then look at Jesus. And today we have the awesome privilege uh, of focusing in on uh, five verses with the words of Jesus. So let's uh, concentrate uh, on them together. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in the seat uh, back in front of you. And if you need a listening guide, you can lift your hand and uh, Nick would be happy since I just volunteered him to get you one from, from the back. Uh, our passage today, uh, Matthew uh, 12, uh, verses uh, 33 through 37. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for bringing all of us here today. We know it is no accident that we are here, we know it is no accident uh, that you have uh, given us this passage 
in the Gospel of Matthew to study together. We believe this is exactly what I need to hear, what we need to hear together. Help us to set aside distractions, to uh, put aside um, the thoughts and things we have to do, that we may focus on you and that through your word, through the work of your spirit, that we would be changed uh, today. We pray this all for Christ's glory and in his name. Amen. So accusations and questions in that vein can, can be more than just a due diligence, but reveal very uncomfortable uh, truths. Best example I have of this was working with my old friend uh, and security guard, uh, Jesse. It was at a hotel downtown, and uh, the front desk agent you know, was a little careless and left his drawer with all the money in, I think downtown hotel, just left it unlocked and went somewhere to do something, came back uh, and uh, realized maybe an hour, maybe two hours later that he was missing $250. Well, what's his first question? Maybe a little curious, but he goes up to the security guard, Jesse, and says, did you take my money? And I was the night auditor that night, so I came in a couple hours after all this went down. And let me tell you, Jesse could barely put water in the fridge, vacuum the, fri- uh, vacuum the, the carpet. He, he was pretty much in- incapacitated to do anything as... He just kept stewing about and kept rehearsing. I mean, I heard that story at least, it seemed like, 30 times uh, throughout the night. And, and why? Well, wh- why was he so upset? Why was he so worked up about it? Well, it, it, what the guy had said to him, the way it was phrased, it indicated it wasn't just confusion. He wasn't just trying to figure out you know, what, what happened? Did Jesse see something? It wasn't just a, a search for knowledge. But, but it indicated to Jesse that he didn't trust Jesse. I mean, why would a security guard you've worked with for a long time, he's just, I, I need 250 bucks. I'm just going to pocket it. Hope uh, when they reveal the security cameras, you know, no one sees, sees me do that. You know, wh- wh- why would the the person have said it that way if he trusted Jesse. The the accusation revealed to him revealed a lot more than just due diligence and any excuses or anything like that to try to mend the relationship were of little value to Jesse because he had heard those words in the, you'd say, the heat of battle and he couldn't get those out of his mind. And today we're continuing in Jesus' response to the accusation of the Pharisees, which we read about last week. Last week, uh, Jesus rebutted their accusation that he was teaming up with Satan to cast out demons, which, let's be honest, Jesus had plenty of material uh, to invalidate such a, a ridiculous claim. You know, Satan casting out Satan, 
It makes no sense, and as Todd reminded us uh, last week, presents a major problem for the disciples of the Pharisees who are uh, casting out uh, demons. And, and this week, Jesus takes it a little uh, farther as he reveals what their accusation indicates about themselves, about the Pharisees. And, and remember that the Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. If you asked an average person on the street who the most spiritual person they know, they, they would probably list off a couple of the Pharisees. They were respected, and their words were taken with great seriousness. That They were popular, but not in the sense of most celebrities, music artists, reality TV stars, sitcom characters in our day. You know, they were known for their diligence in protecting God's people from error and protecting God's people from false teaching. With that in mind, let's go back a few verses, verse 22 through 25, as we see their accusation. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, and then Jesus goes on, as we talked about last week, um, as uh, Todd presented uh, to us. And, and as we come to our passage, starting with verse uh, 33, we see that Jesus reveals uh, three truths uh, which indict the Pharisees for their accusation of his collusion with the devil. And, and these truths provide a window into the character Jesus is creating in his followers. First of all, we see in verse 33 that a tree is known by its fruit. Verse 33, once again. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. This is pretty clear, easy to understand imagery. And you might be thinking, I've heard that before. Why are you thinking that? Because you have. Remember back to the Sermon on the Mount. Where Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. A fruit-producing tree is known by its fruit. Rotten fruit indicates that the tree is bad. Augustine is right on in that this is, when he says that this isn't an admonition, but a precept. It's not that, uh, that there were bad trees producing good fruit, or, or good trees producing bad, and Jesus wants to fix these messed up trees. 
No, good fruit indicates that the, the tree is good. There's no category for a tree that somehow produces good fruit, but it is a bad tree. <coughs> or vice versa. Uh, there's no category for a, a tree that produces a rotten fruit, and somehow, somehow that tree is still uh, good. Anyone making uh, this argument would be delusional. And, and that's exactly Jesus' point in this passage. The, the Pharisees' accusation of Jesus teaming up with Satan can't just be ignored, dismissed as a momentary lapse of judgment, you know, chalked up to them being a tad overzealous or something like that. Their accusation was, was the fruit, indicating that at heart they were bad trees. If they were good trees, they would have said and acted differently. R.T. France gets it correct. The Pharisees' abuse of Jesus could not therefore be treated as a thoughtless passing remark. It revealed their true nature. Excusing these words as just semantics, you misses the point of the integral connection between words and one's inner person. So, so you might ask, so why did the Pharisees you know, label Jesus as colluding with Satan? Jesus already showed last week that it doesn't take a high IQ to poke holes in this ridiculous accusation. But, but there's something deeper going on here. The Pharisees had a vested interest in people not following Jesus after his awe-inspiring exorcism. That they were carefully guarding their own status, their power over people. They, they were looking out for their own interests, certainly not for the interests of the kingdom of God or of the people of God. You can't help but think of another character we've seen in the Gospel of Matthew, John the Baptist, the exact opposite. John the Baptist was happy to and embraced his role in preparing the way for, as it uh, quote from Matthew, it says, for he who is coming after me, who is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. The Pharisees couldn't stomach Jesus taking away any of the attention that was on them, couldn't stomach the idea that he could take some of their followers. And that's the heart of this accusation that Jesus is teaming up with Satan. They have to come up with a way to discredit him, to retain their prestige, to re retain their power over people. <coughs> so, so what does this mean for us? Well, first of all, well, we, we should be on guard for false teachers. In the Sermon on the Mount, it was wolves dressed in sheep's clothing. Now Jesus gets even more specific as he points directly at the Pharisees. We need to be careful of false teachers, false prophets, especially those resembling the Pharisees. Look at the fruit to determine the health of the tree. See, most people in Jesus' day, when they looked at the Pharisees, they saw a lot of 
nice external things. They, they saw their prayers, their time devoted to the temple, their scrupulous observance of the Sabbath. <coughs> and, and they just assumed that given, this, the, given their status and the externals that they saw, that they were God's representatives. They were widely regarded, as I said before, as the most religious people in the day. And Jesus points directly at their words to prove that actually they're opposing God. They have corrupt hearts. These were friendly, nice people. But Jesus proclaims here that they were bad trees. Why? Look at their fruit, and in particular, their words. Appearances do not give a pass on one's words. And how should we apply this? Well, it starts first and foremost within the church, as we want to be carefully evaluating fruit. DJ, Todd, and I, as elders, we want you guys to be looking at the fruit of our lives we want you guys to be listening carefully to, to our words. If, if our words do not line up with the words of Scripture, well, which one has the ultimate authority? We, we, we all ultimately submit to, to God as he has revealed himself in his word. And this applies to watching for false teachers, false prophets in broader Christian circles too. You know, as you want to be careful what you're listening to, if you're listening to sermons uh, online or uh, something like, like that. Uh, at the same time, we have to uh, understand that we have less access to seeing that fruit when you're talking about, a, say, a pastor in another state that you, you know, you've never met. You don't really have access to the fruit his life is producing. But the fruit indicates the health of the tree. You know, second, let's look at our own lives to examine that we, we do not resemble the Pharisees. What type of fruit am I producing? What type of fruit are you producing? How is your behavior, especially when you don't think anyone else is looking. How are your words? What do they reveal about you? Especially when there isn't somebody from church, uh, another Christian around you. Uh, are you doing this Christianity thing because of how it makes you look in front of others? Makes you feel good? Or because Jesus has given you a new heart, given you new desires, loving him and his kingdom above all else. Which gets you more excited? The advance of Jesus' kingdom or the advance of you personally? That's the way fruit should be evaluated. Instead of just assuming that just because you and I go to a church and that we claim the name of Christ, that we're good. Because a good tree will produce good fruit. And just 
maybe, in careful searching of your own self, you realize that your fruit is rotten, like that of the Pharisees. The cure isn't to excuse it because lots of people have bad fruit and plenty have worse than you. The solution isn't better circumstances, different packaging, but is exactly what the Pharisees needed in this passage. They needed radical conversion. That's what they desperately needed. And if that is you today, that is what you need too. And this informs how we live on mission uh, too. In our workplaces, neighborhoods, families. You see, there's two different ditches you can get yourself into on mission. There's the one ditch... Um, primarily exemplified by fundamentalism, where we, we assume that, say in my workplace, anyone who doesn't look, practice exactly like me, well, they can't be a Christian. I mean, that person has a tattoo. You know, or that person goes to this type of church, not the same type of church uh, I go to, and go on and on. That's not the type of people Jesus calls us to be. We're ultimately, as Todd talked about in the Nicene Creed, we're united with other churches. That We might have some small differences, but ultimately we're pursuing God's kingdom. The other ditch, I think this is the ditch most of us are more inclined to, is just assuming that anyone who claims the name of Christ claims to go to church, is good. And that, that just frankly is not the case. The, the Pharisees were very religious, did a lot of very good things, and looked extremely attractive on the outside. But on the inside, they were bad trees. And, and how did Jesus reveal that? Is through their fruit. That, that, that helps us as we want to be developing relationships, want to be spreading the gospel. And, and not just anyone who claims the name of Christ. Okay, so, so look at their fruit. Just because you go to church doesn't mean you're a Christian. Look at how you, you live, your words, your actions, you know, Monday through Saturday are a far better indicator than any superficial appearances on Sunday. And the good part as we live on mission is that whether a person is a Christian and is trying to grow as a Christian or is not a Christian, the good part is that they ultimately need the gospel. Whether to be reminded of it for the hundredth time or to hear it for the first, second, third time. As we continue in this passage, Jesus expands and how we can see the contents of one's heart. Verse 34. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. The mouth speaks from what fills the heart. Jesus addresses the Pharisees directly. And look what he says. You brood or you offspring of vipers. I love it. Jesus is not mincing any words. 
See, they like to call themselves sons of Abraham. But Jesus knows they're actually vipers, children of the snake who messed up everything in the beginning. Vipers were well known for their subtle movements, lethal strikes. They were thought of as evil and destructive, even poisonous, which perfectly describes the character of the Pharisees. They wanted to call themselves sons of Abraham. Jesus reveals, no, 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 that they're actually sons of the devil. And you might be thinking, I've heard that before. It sounds familiar. Let me refresh your memory from Matthew 3. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, look at this, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus intentionally connects his ministry and message with that of John the Baptist. This isn't something the Pharisees hadn't heard before. It's not that they're uninformed. It's not that they're just misguided. They have a fundamental problem with a wrong orientation to God. They have a heart issue that flows out in what they say as evidenced by the accusation we saw last week. And in verse 35, Matthew gives us some vivid imagery of two treasuries. The good person brings out good things out of his treasury and the bad person bad things. Now the treasury is a metaphorical reference to the heart. But this imagery really helps bring home that this concerns what one values most. The the opponents of Jesus were sincere, but they were sincerely wrong. Their inner beings were corrupt and they had a bad treasury. So they could only, out of that bad treasury, out of their bad hearts, they could only bring forth bad things. To accuse Jesus of collusion with the, the devil were words that flowed from their hearts. I, I know this sounds crazy, but many people in Jesus' day would have considered the words of the Pharisees, their accusation, to be good words. Why? Look at these respected religious leaders. And and am I really sure that they're wrong? Or, well, they're, they're just trying to protect God's sheep. But Jesus makes it clear that these were evil words. Subtle, but attacking God's Messiah, and attacking God's people who wanted to embrace him as the Messiah. 
They can't be good words because they come from evil hearts in opposition to God and to God's purposes. A disclaimer here is that this doesn't mean that people can't change. More accurately, God can radically change people. And we see this all throughout the Gospel of Matthew. What this does mean is that as long as the internals remain unchanged, the external words and actions will reflect the corrupt internal state. The Pharisees don't just need realignment. They don't need to just fix their words, to think more before they bring an accusation, but think more before they talk. They need transformation. What does that mean for us? Well, the gospel is a call to transformation. We don't need to, if we realize our, our words are wrong, we don't need just to, to fix them up, to work a little on that, to sanitize ourselves. No, we need a radical 180 degree change of heart. And, and that cannot and will not happen without the work of the Holy Spirit. And that can be hard for us to swallow in our day and age of specific, attainable, measurable results. I was watching the past couple weeks. It's the season when NFL coaches get fired. And you probably saw the Browns fired their coach. Again, seems like it happens every year. It pretty much does. (coughs) Skipped a year this time. No, no, no. It actually did. They fired their coach last year. I'm wrong. And a lot of factors go into the decisions of why coaches get fired. But at the end of the day, it inescapably comes down to numbers, wins and losses. You can only lose so many games. You can only fall short of expectations so many times before the team is going to have a change of direction. And, and in many of our jobs, we, we see specific goals concerning, you know, profit, labor, what you do, accomplishing things. And yes, you can't control all of that, but a lot of that, those results can be manufactured. But Jesus's church is different in that the most significant things cannot be manufactured. Why? Because God must do the work of changing hearts. Yes, we can set goals for um, witnessing to a certain number of people, inviting a certain number of people to church, handing out flyers and the like. (coughs) But the most significant things are only things God can do because only God can transform hearts. God is the one who must do what truly matters. And that, that's why the call for us as a church is faithfulness. Is called to be faithful servants of Christ. Our, our goal is to be faithful in what God has called us to. Therefore, we, we want to be faithfully living out the gospel. We want to be faithfully share, sharing the gospel. We want to be faithfully worshiping together as a church. As pastors, we want to be faithfully unpacking God's word 
uh, for you. And our success is based on that faithfulness to what God has called us to. It's not based on membership numbers, giving numbers, building assets and the like. Because the most significant things of God, of us seeing people come to Jesus and grow in Jesus cannot be manufactured by us, ultimately must come from the work of God in changing people, in changing us. And and that should drive us to prayer, both because we want to see ourselves look more like Jesus and others to be changed by him, and because we realize how utterly dependent we are on the work of the Spirit in all of this. You can identify a problem with your speech uh, in this passage. You know, maybe you feel like, yeah, negativity or gossip or, or slander. But if your speech flows from your heart, which Jesus clearly proclaims it does, the primary focus can't be on fixing, correcting your speech. The Pharisees, again, they didn't need just to Uh, a little more thinking before they would make unfounded accusations against Jesus. No, they needed transformation. They needed a change of heart. They were fundamentally opposed to Jesus because he wasn't the type of Messiah they were looking for. They had deceived themselves that they were serving God by trying to crush this blasphemer. So, so if, the, if the Spirit is showing you an issue with your words, don't shut them up right there. Don't, don't come up with a list of words to focus on. Don't uh, just you know, sp- try to spell that out. But in, let him have full reign and show you the deeper heart issue that must change. Because words flow from the heart. The the biblical call is to let the Spirit shine His light into our hearts and change us from the inside out. It it would have did the the Pharisees no good to regroup and remember not to accuse Jesus of this again. Refocusing their zeal was not the answer. They needed a change of heart, and we do too. As Jesus continues in this passage, he reminds us of the stakes. Verse 36. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Words justify or condemn. These verses underscore the seriousness of the situation. How can one's words be the basis for judgment? Well, we we learned that answer already, that they reveal the the true person. Severe judgment for a careless word might seem to be a little bit of an overreaction until one realizes that that careless word flows from the heart. Not just a mistake, but reveals the inner person. All speech matters, 
And sometimes even the casual remarks can be a truer indication of one's heart than well thought out, even scripted speech. Therefore, one's words are a sound basis for such judgment. And to whom was this judgment specifically addressed? Well, in this passage, Jesus is pointing the finger directly at the Pharisees. They thought their words and works would commend themselves to God on the final day as they worked hard to protect God's people against false teaching, uphold the law and their interpretation of it. But actually, their words will condemn them because their theology has resulted in them accusing Jesus of colluding with the the devil. Their judgment would not be just because their words were incorrect. No, that their words led people astray. Their words pushed others away from Jesus the Messiah and towards the path of destruction. There is judgment, truly severe judgment coming. Words have great significance. Uh, Jesus' teaching is surely the basis um, for the words of James in his epistle. Hear these words. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so they will obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So so we cannot leave this passage without carefully examining our own words. And remember, as Jesus says, it can go both ways. Words can justify by showing that you belong to Jesus and have been transformed by him, or they can condemn by showing that your father is the devil. 
So think about your words of this week. Do your words encourage and exhort or do they tear down? You may claim to be a Christian, building up other believers, but do your words indicate the veracity of that claim? As we attempt to find ourselves in this story, the problem is that as we dig deeper, we realize we're awfully similar to the Pharisees. Our words often indicate some very troubling things about our hearts. And even the best of us would struggle to say that he or she is justified by that person's words. The, the idea of giving account for every thoughtless word on Judgment Day can seem quite terrifying. Here's the good news in the gospel, is that we cannot justify ourselves. Trusting in yourself will only bring condemnation. When, when this passage says, by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Does Jesus present justification on the basis of our words while knowing that that is certainly not going to work for any of us? And my answer to that would be no. I believe that's the wrong interpretation. In context, I believe Jesus does expect his followers to be justified by their words while the Pharisees would be condemned by theirs. However, this is not justification on the basis of one's words. As the Gospel of Matthew progresses, we see that we must trust in and embrace Jesus' death on our behalf. We'll get to that. It might take us about a year, but we're, we're, we're going there. Justification, being declared righteous by God, is on the basis of Jesus' substitutionary atonement, his payment on my behalf. One's words, though, evidence or show that inward reality. Because when Jesus justifies someone, he radically changes that person. He radically changes that person from the inside out. And one's actions, one's words reveal one's heart. If you're here today and you know your words reveal that you don't have a relationship with Jesus, your words reveal that you haven't encountered him, you haven't been changed by him. The call is not to fix yourself. The call is to run to Jesus and let him transform you. If you are a Christian here today, rejoice in Jesus' saving work on your behalf. Rejoice in the fact that he has changed you and is still changing you. You are not the same person that you were, and that is a very good thing. You have new desires. You have a new heart. You celebrate Jesus' kingdom and long for that final day to come more and more and ask Jesus to continue his work changing you transforming you to look more like him pray with me